Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. I hope you're watching the news. Uh, it is a, um, there's some scary things going on around the world today. I've been trying to, to pay attention to all the events taking place in, in Eastern Europe. If you've not been watching, um, in spite of his promises to the contrary, it, it appears that Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, has got his eyes set on invading the sovereign country of, of Ukraine. Uh, if you've paid attention at all, over the past several weeks, Russia has amassed over 100,000 troops on the Ukrainian border. They've got troops and other military assets. I, I read an article the other day that even suggested that Russia was moving blood supplies to the border. The opening paragraph of the article said this, Russia's military buildup near Ukraine has expanded to include supplies of blood along with other medical materials that would allow it to treat casualties and yet another key indicator of Moscow's military readiness, three U.S. officials told Reuters. So it's an official news release from a news aggregate site. Uh, those are certainly startling things to hear. I don't actually know how you track blood supply and blood delivery to the front lines of things like that. But we do certainly need to keep the people of Ukraine in prayer, uh, particularly um, really all of Eastern Europe, particularly our brothers and sisters who are there who are trying to share the gospel. Keep in mind that with all these conflicts, there's churches filled with people who love and serve Jesus that are affected in these things. And so we certainly want to keep those folks in prayer as this conflict escalates there. Of course, we live in a day today where we have all these high-definition satellites, and uh, I saw a news article that actually had a, a satellite photo of a Russian camp in, on the border, and I thought, I thought, man, you can count the tents that, uh, that they've got set up there. It's hard to sneak up on anybody anymore, right? Uh, I, I was thinking about this, that even my house, it's hard to sneak up on me now because I've got cameras around the house and things, and so if somebody pulls in the driveway, the mailman leaves my mail in a box, and, and I find out about it. It's like, you're not sneaking by, Mr. Mailman. I know when you've, when you've paid, paid a visit. Uh, and, and, I mean, it's hard to sneak up on people today. It's, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting day and time when people choose to rob somebody because it's, uh, you know, it's not like 20 years ago you might get away with it. Today you're, you're taking your life into your own hands when you do something like that. And so much less an entire nation trying to invade a, another country to, to try to do that and, and be sneaky about it. We're going to figure out about that sort of thing. You know, last week, Dr. Luke took us on a journey across modern-day Turkey, took us to the harbor at the town called Troas. And while in Troas, we find that Paul had a vision of a European man, specifically a Macedonian man, who was pleading with Paul for help. And last week, we talked about the fact that Paul and his companions made a decision. They made a decision to get on a boat in the city of Troas and sail across the Mediterranean and take a land, take hold of the European continent. Now, that trip certainly wasn't as spectacular as what Vladimir Putin is doing today. That invasion of Europe was far more subtle than what appears to be happening there today. I would argue, though, that the consequences of the invasion that we read about in Acts chapter 16, though subtle, has far greater and far more reaching consequences than any political ruler could ever hope for. So this morning, as we consider this idea of this subtle invasion, let us turn our attention to Acts chapter 16. And the very first skirmish 
of what would become a battle for the ends of the earth. If you've got your Bibles open to Acts chapter 16 this morning, we'll be in verse 6 through 15. If you're able, I would invite you to stand with me as we read these words. Just to recap what we discussed last week. It says, As they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where, where, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together, and one of them heard us, and one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this woman, Lydia, that was converted there in Philippi, then what would become the first of many Europeans who would give their life to Christ. Father, I pray that even today as we gather here in the United States of America, we understand that, um, that Europe finds itself in upheaval again uh, with conflict being threatened. And Lord, we pray today that though we have so little control over what happens in these events, God, that your church would prevail. And that the church in these communities and nations would be strengthened. And that, God, in spite of the, the conflict that's brewing, Father, that the gospel might, might prevail in that, in that community and in those nations. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. May we consider it correctly today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You know, when you look at the events of Acts chapter 16 on a, on a map, and I've got a map you can see on the screen behind me, it's, it's very evident how God was, was pushing this team in a very obvious direction. The, you can see the kind of big, big salmon-colored block in the middle of the map that says Asia, and you can see the, the pathway running across the, the northern section there of that, of that particular area. We understand in reading through Acts chapter 16 that Paul and his companions, they want to go to the northeast. That's where the direction they kept being pushed, they, they kept wanting to go was to the northeast. And what's interesting is that if they had gone that way, that that would have taken them into places that, well, let's just be honest, you might not be able to label on a map today. Places like, um, like Georgia, you say, hey, I know where that is. Maybe not the Georgia on, on that map. Uh, places like um, Armenia. Uh, maybe, maybe the very popular destination side of Azerbaijan. Um, I, I'll be honest, if you handed me a blank map of Europe and asked me to fill out uh, Azerbaijan and places like that, I'm probably going to need to phone a friend uh, to locate those on a map. But that's the direction that Paul kept wanting to go. He kept wanting to go into, into that region. 
But God was sending them into a different direction. God was sending them into Europe. And it's said in the ancient world that all roads lead to Rome. It's like Atlanta. Get on the interstate in Georgia, you'll end up in Atlanta. Which if all roads lead to Rome, that means that all roads also depart from Rome. So taking the gospel into the center of the Roman Empire made a lot of sense, logistically speaking. But for whatever reason, Paul and, and his companions, they wanted to go the other way, in a different direction. And may have represented their own lack of confidence. Maybe they weren't sure what direction to go. It's just speculation. But thankfully, they weren't listening to what they wanted. They were listening to what God wanted. They were listening to the direction of the Holy Spirit, and they took those first steps onto the European continent. In what is a very subtle invasion, the kingdom of God took its first steps into the city of Philippi. Now, you say, I don't know much about Philippi. We need to understand it's one of the most significant cities there in the region. Luke tells us it's a leading city of the region of Macedonia there. And so they, in them, they find that they're there in Philippi. The city there in, in the church that would house it would become one of Paul's most beloved communities. If you go read the letter to the Philippians, it's a letter that Paul wrote that's very warm. It's full of familial kind of love and affection. Paul had a great affection for the church at Philippi. But in order for that church to happen, there was some work that needed to happen first. Some interesting things that we can piece together about Philippi and the spiritual condition of Philippi from just what Luke tells us here. First thing we can understand is there weren't very many God-fearing men in this city. Because in order to have a Jewish synagogue, if you recall, every time Paul goes into a community, he goes to a synagogue, that becomes the base of operations for Paul's work in a city. Uh, in order to have a synagogue, you had to have at least 10 Jewish men. But what we find out is that when Paul shows up in Philippi, his, his first stop, once he gets his bearing in the city, is they don't go to a synagogue. They have to go outside the city into what's known as a, as a place of prayer. And, and there's even some ambiguity in that regard. It, it was supposed, they supposed there would be a place, a place of prayer. It wasn't even a, wasn't like there was a sign up that said, Philippi, place of prayer. Say that three times fast. There wasn't a sign. They, they thought it was a place of prayer. They suspected that people may gather there. So there weren't very many God-fearing men there in that community because there was no synagogue. And again, we simply have to embrace the fact that it shows that there's a very sad state of Judaism there. That means that Paul had to come up with a different strategy in this new community in which he had never been before. He couldn't start there in the synagogue. Not only was there a lack of Jewish men, it seems that there was just a general dislike of the Jewish faith. If you look over at verse 20, we didn't actually read that today, but it says that these men are, are Jews. And that sounds almost like an insult, like it's a pejorative thing to say, like there's a strong sense of anti-Semitism there. These men are Jews, particularly in a city where you couldn't find 10 Jewish men to build a synagogue. These people in Philippi were were proud Romans. Acts chapter 16, verse 21 says that these, these Jews advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or, or practice. And since there was a dislike of Judaism, it's safe to say that Christianity probably wasn't well received either. And there were some towns in the Roman Empire where there was a strong Jewish population. Philippi was not one of them. Yet we still understand that Philippi becomes a very strong a very thriving, a very generous church, which is a testimony to God's work there because he started with such few raw materials. 
And, and truly, we understand that for Paul, the city was, was absolutely foreign. I look at verse 12. It says that they remained in the city some days. They had to get their bearings. They had to figure out where they were. This was a foreign place. It was more Roman than anything that they had ever seen. And there was very little there that was familiar. There was no Jewish culture which they were familiar with. You ever been in a place so foreign it took you a little while to get adjusted? I remember the very first time I went out of the country. I went with, uh, with seminary. We went to, uh, to Jamaica, and my Old Testament professor came with us. He was actually going to the seminary there to teach a, a three-week Old Testament class. And Ken Matthews, he's about this tall. He's as frail as could be, and, and, but he's, he had just this incredible dry sense of humor for an Old Testament Hebrew professor. Understand that, okay? Um, and I remember in Jamaica, and if you've never been to Jamaica, I'll just say that they have some, some carvings in Jamaica that are, you wouldn't want to bring one home to grandma. I'll say that. Uh, they uh, uh, were, were at best indecent, and if I can go one step further and say that they're not only indecent, they're disproportionate. Um, and so we're riding around, and these little carvings and big carvings are literally everywhere. I mean, every market, they're there. I mean, everywhere you look, there are these terrible, obscene carvings. And Dr. Matthews, and we're all sitting there like, like you know, goodness gracious, this is, this is, you know, sensory overload. And Dr. Matthews is sitting there, and I could see him shaking his head. He was just in, just in absolute disgust of what he had seen. And he finally, it was all he could took, and he asked the bus driver, he said, he said, driver, are we in Jamaica or are we in Canaan? I realize the joke is somewhat lost, but for an Old Testament professor to say, is this, is this Canaan? Is like, is this, is this like Sodom and Gomorrah that we're actually driving through here? It was foreign. It was different. It was something that, that we, were, we were not accustomed to. Well, Philippi was probably a strange place too, because again, nothing that Paul was accustomed to. So we find out he goes to this supposed place of prayer, and there are some ladies who were gathered there for a time of prayer and, and worship, and we actually are introduced to a woman named Lydia. Lydia is an important figure in this story. She, we understand she was a well-to-do businesswoman, told that she was a dealer in purple fabric. Her home was Thyatira. She was a, it was a center of textile production, so she obviously learned the trade from home, but somehow she ended up in the city of Philippi. In all likelihood, she probably ended up there with her husband. She's probably a widow now, though, based on the circumstances we see about her. But she used her knowledge in making purple cloth to, become, to begin a similar business there in Philippi. However, in spite of her status, in spite of her wealth and success, it did not affect her attitude. We also understand that she was a Gentile. She's described in verse 14 as a worshiper of God. She's not Jewish. She was a Gentile who chose to worship the true God in a city where his people weren't very welcome. And that helps us to see that this woman was very much a strong-willed, independent woman. So if you're a strong-willed, independent woman, Lydia can be your, be your go-to person. That's who she, she is a soul sister to you. She didn't need approval or, or accolades. She did what she thought was right, regardless of what other people thought. It's easy to understand with somebody like that how she managed to build a successful business and run a household all at the same time. But what makes Lydia most important is not her career, not her wealth and her prestige. It's this simple fact here. She was the first known Christian in Europe. You know, nobody else can make that claim. 
She's the only person in history who can absolutely make the claim on that title. We read in Acts 16 that God was at work in her heart. That when she heard the message that Paul shared, that the Lord opened her heart to receive that message. We're reminded we don't need to miss the work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives, in the hearts of folks who, who, are, who are hearing the gospel. Because what happens when somebody gives their life to Christ, there is this incredible, there's this incredible junction that happens in somebody's life when they give their life to Jesus. We see this, this, this joining of the Holy Spirit's work with the availability of the gospel message. And when that happens, people get saved. Because you can't, again, you can't help but marvel at the timing of, of all this. First, you have Paul's vision of the Macedonian man. Paul and Silas here roamed the city for a few days, and before they found the, the riverside gathering there, yet on this day, they run across this successful woman whose heart has been in tune with the Lord for a while, but now she's at a place where the gospel message brought to completion all the things that she had heard. And Lydia that day on the riverbank gives her life to Christ. She becomes the first of what would become many people in Europe who would give their life to Christ. And we have to recognize this about Lydia. She became a significant asset to the church there in Philippi. Again, we, we read about her here when, when she saved the, the missionaries. They're trying to figure out where to stay. And she's like, no, you're going to come to my house. You ever been around somebody like that? Like, like not, you're welcome to stay here. Now, Lydia says, no, 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 no. You're coming to my house. That's that aggressive gift of hospitality. Do you want something to drink? No, you're going to get a glass of tea, right? I mean, it's not a question. It's a, it's a do you want it sweet or unsweet? You know, it's, it's that kind of thing. And, and she has this incredible influence over Paul. She's, she's got this incredible gift of hospitality. She insisted that the missionaries here use her home as a base of operation. And I love what Luke says about her here. He says, and she prevailed upon us. She wouldn't take no for an answer. She gave them an offer they couldn't refuse. And Lydia and her home hosted the first church in Europe. Again, don't miss the significance of what's happening here in Acts chapter 16. You see down in verse 40, when the Philippian mission is over, Paul and Silas leave Philippi. The last stop they make, where? It's at Lydia's house. That's where they met with the brothers before they departed. She was wealthy, she was successful, but that wealth and success wasn't something that she hoarded for herself, but it was something very early on that she learned to use to point other people to the gospel. There's other believers at Lydia's house now. Other people have given their life to Christ. Now again, Paul and Silas have been sharing the gospel. People have been getting saved, but we have to recognize that there's other stuff going on behind the scenes here. It wasn't that the church was built on Paul and Silas's work. Paul and Silas were sharing the gospel, but, but Lydia and her whole house got saved. Everybody in her household came to Christ. Lydia was sharing the gospel as well. Lydia was a person of influence, and she was influencing others for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't help but think that this woman who sold purple cloth was somebody that people listened to. Someone with that level of influence whose heart was in tune with the Lord, you can't help but recognize that God made Lydia a very powerful person for the gospel in this pagan Roman city. But as we look at the overall story, there's a couple things I want us to glean from her conversion and the subsequent events. And the first thing I want us to understand is this. Lydia's story is representative of how the kingdom of God typically works. 
This is how God's kingdom typically advances. It's not 100,000 troops on the border. It's a very subtle invasion. We long for the mass conversion experiences, right? Because it's easy. It's, 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 it's fish in a barrel. We miss the Billy Graham crusades. I, I remember as a kid even watching the Billy Graham crusades and seeing hundreds of people respond to the simple preaching of the gospel, giving their life to Christ right there in the middle of this massive stadium with tens of thousands of people in attendance. I miss seeing those, those invitations where, where hundreds and hundreds of people get saved. I, I, we look back in the beginning of Acts and, and that Pentecost revival when thousands of people gave their life to Christ. Those are dramatic and remarkable events that stand out in our history. But I think if we're honest, if each and every single one of us look back at our own testimony and our own journey, I would say that the minority in the room are people who were saved at some dramatic event where dozens and dozens of people got saved. The majority of us in the room, when we gave our life to Christ, it was on the back of a simple conversation that somebody had with us, a simple presentation that somebody had with us, a, 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 a meeting after Sunday school class when the Sunday school teacher shared the gospel with us, a, a meeting in, the, in vacation Bible school. I, I remember just even over the course of 20 years of ministry, those meetings that happened after that evangelism night at vacation Bible school. I've never sat down with 30 kids who've all professed faith in Jesus. Every single time that I have the meeting on va during vacation Bible school, it's with one kid or two kids. And just over and over again, that's how God so frequently works in the advance of his kingdom. It is, the, it is that simple conversation that happens. Because what happens is when the kingdom of God advances against the kingdom of the world, the invasion is usually subtle. It moves and fits and starts. It moves in ways that seem haphazard at best. But over and over again, the kingdom of God invades the kingdom of this world through a simple gospel conversation with someone who's looking for God by the riverside. That's where that kingdom advances. Paul and Silas didn't know what this woman had been going through, didn't know anything about her story, anything about her journey, didn't know anything about this woman, other than she was there at the place of prayer for a time of encouragement with other women. They didn't know that God had already been working on her heart, but when they shared the gospel with her, it was like a breath of fresh air. Remember when you gave your life to Christ, how, how you became aware of your sin and how, how, how destitute your situation was, but the breath of the gospel is like a burden is lifted off of you because all the sin and all the despair and all the folly that you realize you've been carrying around, and suddenly the word of God comes and says, there is a Savior who wants to lift that burden off your shoulders. There is one who wants to carry your debt of sin. There is someone who wants to free you and liberate you and make you new. What a breath of fresh air that is. That's what happens there on that riverside with Miss Lydia. Suddenly when she heard the gospel, everything that she'd ever believed suddenly made sense. And this doesn't happen if those simple conversations aren't taking place. Listen, this pulpit is and hopefully will always be a place where the gospel's preached plainly and simply. But Lydia wasn't saved in a big church service. She was saved in what I guess we might call the equivalent of a women's Bible study. Didn't have a room to meet in, so they met by the riverside. She was saved in this small group of community people who were 
like-minded, just seeking the Lord. Think about all the different types of gatherings like this that we have today. We certainly have those in church, but think about all the non-church gatherings that we have today. Gatherings where people join together around common causes and shared interests, civic clubs and organizations. God has given us so many opportunities today to influence people with the gospel, from the civic organization to the tournament of whatever sport my kid may or may not be playing. My kids were never the, the, the tournament kids. We, we didn't really get into the, the, the tournament sporting events and things like that. But we went, uh, we went up Friday night just to, just to spend some time up in Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge. We stayed at a hotel, and, and I was watching. There was a tournament going on, and I think it was volleyball because seven out of ten cars in the parking lot had a volleyball sticker on their window. Context clues matter. And I was watching these people in the lobby of the hotel, and there was just really a sense of fellowship and communion and kinship that was there in the middle of, of what was just a, just a weekend ball tournament. And I think of what would happen if the gospel was simply injected into those gatherings where it wasn't just a ball tournament, but where the Christians among us took the opportunity in those gatherings to inject those gospel conversations. God gives us so many riversides where people gather we don't know their story, we don't know their journey, but so many riversides where a simple gospel conversation could literally change somebody's life. It's a subtle invasion, the kingdom of God is. It's not taking over the world by wholesale conquest, but it's an invasion that, that's successful by winning individual hearts and individual minds. And winning those individual hearts and minds so often leads to the hearts and minds of families. We, we go back to the Great Commission that certainly commands us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, but more specifically, the Great Commission takes us, calls us to take the gospel to our daily lives. It's not therefore go, it's as you go. And certainly that takes us to the ends of the earth, but as you go also takes you to the civic club, takes you to the classroom, and takes you to your workplace. And that's the Christian calling for each and every single one of us. Look around your daily life today. Who is the Lydia that you see consistently? A nice person? An outgoing person? A person that you enjoy spending time with, but a person who doesn't have a saving relationship with Christ? What if your simple gospel conversation suddenly connects all the dots for what that particular Lydia has been struggling with? But look what Lydia goes on to become. Lydia was exactly what the church at Philippi needed to thrive. There was no synagogue to base operations, but Lydia's home becomes the place where the church actually meets together. Her home was, as someone who had some wealth, it provided a degree of security. But it wasn't just because of her wealth that she was able to make such an impact. We recognize immediately that her spiritual gift was the gift of hospitality. She, after she was baptized in her household, she urged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. She didn't have to figure it out. She didn't have to take a spiritual gift inventory. You know what? I think I'm gifted in hospitality. The second she gave her life to Christ, she was obedient in baptism. She said, you're coming to my house. We got a crock pot on with pot roast in. We're having dinner at my house tonight. She immediately realized what her area of giftedness was. And who could turn down an offer of a crock pot full of pot roast? Not Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. She prevailed upon us. You may know people like that. Maybe you're somebody like that. The door to your house is a revolving door. 
you're not exactly sure who lives there and who doesn't live there. What a treat to be around truly hospitable people. People who love the Lord and people who love others and serve in that way. But Lydia's story reminds us of another very important principle in the kingdom of God. In order for the church to function and to continue that subtle invasion of the kingdom of this world, people in the church must know and utilize their giftedness. Lydia immediately puts her gift to work for the good of the church, for the good of the kingdom. Paul says it this way to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 4. He says, there's variety of gifts but the same spirit, and there are varieties of service but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. To each, each means all, each means we, we're all each. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And we understand that in the church today, there are those who are not using their gifts for the good of the church. When you don't use your gifts, when you don't employ your gifts, when you don't deploy your spiritual gifts, you're creating a deficiency in the body of Christ. You've been saved but you've been saved, and, and in this salvation, there is purpose built into you. The purpose is, is the building of the church. And when you don't use your gifts, the truth is, is that you're hurting the body. If Lydia had not used her gift of hospitality, then the church at Philippi may have never gotten off the ground. When you hold back your gifts from use in the church, you need to ask the question, what work am I potentially hindering. I'll be real transparent for a moment. Over the course of the last two years, there's a fear inside of me that not just us, but Christian culture in general, that we've allowed the church to be boiled down to a gathering. That, that church is what we do on Sunday morning at this particular time slot, and that's what we have allowed church to be boiled down to, and the pandemic has exacerbated this problem. But here's the problem. If this is the only thing church is, then there's not room for everybody to deploy their gifts, right? If, if church is only what happens at 1045 on Sunday or whatever time your church happens to meet, there's not room in this time for everyone to put their gifts to work. Look around the room and, and look around the campus of our church here, and, and let's think of all the jobs that happen in this time slot. There's preachers. There's really only room for not many of those, okay? It'd get awkward if we had two people preaching at the same time. There's musicians, and there's room for musicians, and, but we're still limited in space, right? We can't have 100 musicians. There's just not room. There's technicians. You guys have the spiritual gift of button pushing. Uh, and, so, and they do a fantastic job of button pushing. They bu push buttons to the glory of God and people at home are watching and they can hear what we're doing because of the people who are pushing buttons to the glory of God. And it sounds decent in here because these guys know what they're doing. There's a gift of, there's, there's praying. We have a prayer room that's available and open. We'd love for people to pray during our service. So there's room there. There's child care. Some of y'all love child care. Some of you don't love child care. We don't want people who don't love child care doing child care. But those of you that love it, we want you serving in that way. You don't want me going back and changing diapers. Because my wife will tell you that when we had our first kid, I practiced changing diapers on a teddy bear because I had never done it before. And I didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to mess that up, right? I didn't want a bad reputation. Not everybody's gifted in that way. Some are. 
There's hospitality. We want smiling people at the doors, greeting people and welcoming people and showing them around. I mean, of course, that. We've got safety and security. There's guys that their sole purpose on Sunday morning is, is they want to serve and help make sure we have a safe place to worship. That nobody's breaking into cars and nobody's breaking into buildings. I mean, those, those are all kind of places where we, we have to serve during this time on a Sunday morning. You back up an hour and we have Sunday school. There's people who like to teach and teachers are gifted in Sunday school. Uh, so we see that those are, those are various places to serve and, and do. But what if your thing is not listed? What if your thing is cooking? Well, there's not a place to, for you to cook on, on Sunday morning during church. I mean, you can cook as lunch, but I think that'd probably wear you out pretty quickly if we all just came and ate right after church together. I mean, there's all kinds of things that you may be gifted to do, but you can't deploy it at 1045 on a Sunday morning. So what do you do? That means that church has to be more than a gathering. The church has to be more than just something that we do on the calendar. The church is a people, a people called to a purpose, and that purpose is taking the gospel to our own neighbors and to the ends of the earth, and it happens through various ways. And, and what we've seen is the, as the church's ministry expands, it, that, that we've learned that you can take a ball and, and put in somebody's hand, and they can take that ball and use that ball for the glory of God and use that ball as an avenue to share the gospel. And suddenly somebody who said, you know, I'm not comfortable teaching a Sunday school class, but I'm comfortable coaching a ball team, they can take that ball, and then we've em empowered them with gifts to the glory of God. And so what we find is that in order for, the, for, for people to put their gifts to work, that we've got to look beyond just Sunday morning church. It's got to be more than just a gathering. In some ways, we've inadvertently bought the lie that church is only what we do on Sunday morning. But the simple fact is this. The kingdom of God pushes back on the kingdom of the world seven days a week. Invasions don't happen just on one day a week. And invasions need soldiers every hour and every day. I'm going to say this with as, with as much sincerity as I can, and if I've learned anything over the last two years is this. If we at Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church are ever going to be the church that God wants us to be, we need you. We need you. This is not done by paid staff. It's not done by deacons. It's not done by a select few. We need you. Each and every single one of you who are in Christ who's a part of Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church, we need you. We believe that God has called our church to be an embassy of Christ to our community, just like the church at Philippi came to be an embassy in her community. But in order to see that happen, we need you. God designed you to fit in specific ways, and we need you to fill those specific gaps. Lydia and what will unfold in the coming chapters remind us of something very important. Every single story matters. Every story matters. Lydia could have simply been somebody that got saved there on the riverbank, but Lydia becomes an essential person in the church at Philippi, just like all the other people that became part of the church at Philippi. Each of their stories matter, and all of the stories that you bring to the table matter, and all of the stories that you help tell matter. Sunday school teacher, when you lead that child to Christ in your Sunday school class, that story becomes part of God's story, and that story matters. 
That child may grow up to do great and remarkable and amazing things. That child may grow up to become a good father or good mother. But that story absolutely matters. And you're helping us to tell that story each and every single time we put our hands to work for the kingdom of God. We're watching very alarming trends in the church today. The things that we're seeing research-driven information is, is frightening. There are many indicators that suggest that the kingdom of God is on the retreat, losing ground against the forces of evil in the world. But I'm not content to give up, to wave a white flag, to say that the work is finished. Because I believe that we as God's people today, that we need to renew our focus on Christ, we need to renew our commitment to the gospel, and it's not too late to see those statistics begin to turn. You know, whenever someone enlists in the military, they have to make a, a pledge, they have to take an oath, something like this. They state their name and they do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to do the same, that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. Listen to the last line, that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office upon which I'm about to enter. So help me God. The men and women who take that oath do so understanding that they may be asked to give their life for the cause of liberty. And many have, many more will. And at no offense to those who served in our armed forces, I believe that the cause of Christ is so much greater. I believe that the cause of Christ doesn't just function in the here and now, but that the cause of Christ goes into our future and indeed into eternity. And I believe that if we're ever to see the darkness of our day changed, then it will take all of us well and faithfully discharging the offices upon which we have entered. And again, that may not come with exciting flourishes. It may not come with signs and wonders like we read from the apostles in the New Testament. But when we as God's people faithfully execute the office, discharge the office that we've entered into, what it does come with is that story of that kid that gives his life to Christ after vacation Bible school. The story of that that lady that you met in your civic organization who God's been working on, but your testimony is exactly what, it need, what she needed to bring all the pieces together. The kingdom of God is, 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 is made with a story of, of, of your child seeing you live faithfully and wanting to be obedient to Christ and follow your example. The kingdom of God is filled with stories of that Bible study that you lead at school after school or that day you took a hot meal over to a homeless camp and shined the light of Christ to somebody. The kingdom of God is made with those stories. And we as God's people, by putting our gifts to work, help make sure those stories continue to be told each and every single day. So, 
will you help us at Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church tell the stories that God wants us to tell? Would you pray with me, please? Father, I want to thank you for this Philippian woman, this woman of sold purple fabric in Philippi, that that simple gospel word that Paul shared was exactly what she needed at exactly the time that she needed it. And as a consequence, <laughs> I say this, and this is not overstated, the world was changed. The church at Philippi became the the beachhead in this new invasion into a new continent that would lead to literally the ends of the earth. But Lydia's story is just one of countless others that need to be told. And we as your people today continue to do our work to make sure that that story that we love to tell never gets old. And so, Lord, may we recognize that we don't have to see hundreds saved to know that you're working, but that, God, we see you work in that one little boy in our Sunday school class that gives his life to Christ. That one student who talks to his student pastor after church wants to know what it means to follow Jesus. That one college student that goes to his Baptist student union and on his darkest day hears the good news of Christ. That husband whose marriage is a wreck who understands who Jesus is for the first time. Or Lord, even that 84-year-old woman who for her whole life had been living a lie and realized her need for Jesus. Over and over again, those stories are told and the kingdom continues to invade the kingdom of this world. May we not give up, may we not lose sight, and may we recognize our role in deploying our gifts in service to our king. Just like Lydia, a simple gift of hospitality change the world who knows what our impact can be if we'll faithfully put our gifts to work in your church for your glory Lord I thank you for today and I thank you for the privilege we have to spend time in your word today may you do work in each of our hearts as we sing and as we respond we ask these things in Jesus name Amen Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.